Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guests for this episode are Caroline Wallace and Jesse Peterson, the owners of Inside Edge Design, LLC, a permaculture design firm based in Helena, Montana, that applies the social system design framework of Dave Jackie to their municipal-scale projects. During this conversation, we talk about niche analysis and social system design, and how to use this in our work as permaculture practitioners to make the invisible structures a more visible part of the process. We use their 6th Ward Garden Park project as an example of how they worked with a local parks department and government in order to gain approval for the installation of a one-acre food forest. I find that this interview complements the conversation I had with Steve Whitman in episode 1517, Community Planning, very well. So after listening to this one, go and check out that one if you haven't already. Together, they help to prepare you to better engage the society where you live. Before we begin, a reminder that the Traveling Permaculture Library Project is now being managed by Matt Winters, author of The Gift, and it's a great time for you to get involved. Email your name and address to librarian at thepermaculturepodcast.com, and he will add you to the mailing list of this cycle of virtuous giving. Now then, on to Caroline and Jesse. I'll join you afterwards. Then, Jesse and Caroline, if you're ready, could you give us a bit of your biographies and backgrounds, how you came to do what you're doing? And then we can talk about social systems design. Sure. So this is Caroline Wallace, and I am originally from Woolwine or Stewart, Virginia, in the Blue Ridge uh, region of the Appalachians in southwestern Virginia, uh, now in Helena, Montana. Obviously, I've been here for, um, this will be my fifth year, I believe it is. I came to Montana and to Helena to work as an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer with a food and ag advocacy organization in Montana called Arrow. And my background um, before that, I had recently obtained my uh, degree in landscape architecture from Virginia Tech. So my background is very much in uh, design and in uh, landscape design and technical training for landscape design, construction, and and also a love of plants, a lot of uh, horticultural experience, nurseries, working at nurseries when I was in high school. And of course, um, yeah, the permaculture piece uh, came into the picture when uh, about three years ago, I believe, I got my permaculture design certificate from Skeeter Michael Polarski here in Montana. And uh, that for me, getting my PDC and learning more about permaculture was really I guess, sort of a turning point for me in how I utilized my landscape architecture degree. I think until that time, there was something missing from landscape architecture for me. And uh, what it is, is I think that the social piece and, and a couple of different forms. One is a really authentic, I think, participatory design process. And um, along with that, sort of the permaculture model of putting design tools and skills into the hands of everyone and just and making that really accessible. And then the other piece, I think, was sort of, yeah, the direct involvement of the users of a landscape, of a public space, of, you know, the built environment in designing being integral to the design, management, sort of every piece of that. And then, Jesse, how did you come to Helena and your practice of permaculture? Sure, Scott. So this is Jessica Peterson, and everyone can call me Jesse right when they meet me. My background uh, in undergrad is psychology. That's what my uh, bachelor's is in. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer and uh, worked with um, health, uh, particularly maternal and child health in Madagascar. And that was one of the first experiences I had where I really lived with um, without any of the kind of urban amenities that I had been raised in. I was raised right in the city of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and um, grew up using, you know, taking for granted public transit and uh, running water and all the things that come with a, a developed world urban um, environment. And I, in Madagascar, that was my first uh, awakening to the deepening of kind of consciousness or um, maybe meditative 
qualities of not having electricity or not having access to running water, um, having to work, live more within nature setup of um, light and um, heat and cool and um, the timing of life in relation to really needing to understand where your basic needs are going to be met in terms of food and water um, and, and healthy food and water, clean water. And I also recognized in that time period, people were really poor where I was living and they were also uh, had really deep relationships. Uh, they really relied upon each other. And I think out of those relationships, there was just a high value placed on community and a high value placed on being together and enjoying just little moments. And so there was lots of downtime after the work was done or after the the sun went down and we just had candlelight. There were just a few generators in town where um, people really hung out together and communicated and and laughed and there was intergenerational living and just a lot of myriad qualities that came from that that experience. So uh, with that, I lost a little bit of my material self. I had been a person who was into knockoff Prada bags when I would visit New York and, and I had a used BMW as my first car, you know, kind of this status thing with a sunroof and bright red that I would zoom around in. And so that was all pre-Peace Corps experience. And coming out of that, I just started looking much more at systems, really interested in the systems that led to people in other countries being very poor versus folks in our country kind of on a on a whole basis being more wealthy. But obviously within our country, we have a lot of um, inequalities as well. And just started to really be more interested in looking at that and what was causing all of that. And so worked for a few years in New York City for a YMCA and wondered why it was that we had so many nonprofit organizations addressing poverty and yet people were still poor. What was going on with that? And um, how could we have so much of an industry dedicated to um, serving people and um, alleviating poverty and sickness and yet still have it? And so that led me to uh, find a school in the Netherlands called the Institute of Social Studies, um, which looked on a kind of really broad global scale at social economic systems and what it was that actually uh, led to the various states of being for people throughout the world or environmental consequences or this kind of thing. Um, and so I ended up getting a master's in population and development economics from this school. And from that framework, it, it led me to permaculture. And it led me to permaculture because I guess what I learned from looking at those economic theories and the way that people make decisions based on the resources that they have is that it's really important that you have a resilient system going on in your own place. When you have a resilient system, you're able to make better decisions for yourself. You're able to uh, treat your community better um, when you're not feeling like you are desperate for something. And so that led me to away from doing international work, which had been kind of my initial thought for myself, and instead led me to concentrate, to, to believe that it was more important for me to concentrate on where I lived and where I was from and to um, try to work within um, sustainable resources within those areas and that that would actually be a way to heal the outside world as well. If, if we could figure out how to manage things at home and, and use what we had available at home rather than than taking from elsewhere. And so from that, I just found permaculture. I went out to the Bullock homestead and um, got a little glimpse of it. And then like Caroline, um, I did a different course under Skeeter, but Skeeter Polarski was also my teacher in Montana in a Montana course. And that was about three years ago. And from, from the, for me, permaculture is really this whole systems approach that is a big part of the answer for how we learn to work within our own place and use our own resources and that that ultimately um, can be a way that we um, get a fairer society where people have what they need elsewhere as well. Um, and so here we are, we formed Inside Edge Design. My background is less design intensive, especially on like working with CAD and what have you, which Caroline is, 
incredibly good at, um, makes really beautiful design. My background is more the community mobilizing, participatory practices, looking at theory and, and thinking about it in an educational format. And so Caroline and I have developed a really exciting business that is merging these these skills and also a real exchange of of learning between ourselves as well as we go. What you said there, Jesse, about not being desperate for something, even though I'm I'm not particularly keen on his work, I prefer the work of Viktor Frankl in many ways. It reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy. As we meet these different needs, we become more secure in ourselves. And as we as individuals are more secure, then so is our community. And I'm wondering how your experiences for both of you as volunteers informed this place that you've taken your design work and coming together in doing both very technical landscape oriented work as well as developing within a community? Yeah, so I think that uh, my experience as an AmeriCorps volunteer and in other you know, various volunteer capacities in our community is that the social piece of a design really makes or breaks its success. I think when I was getting started with some community projects. One was a composting system for our local food chair. And that project was not a success in the end because I hadn't invested the time needed to work with the people who were going to be responsible for managing that and working with it and sort of having a really complete sense of what are their needs and what are their yields and what are their characteristics. And um, that really simple framework of thinking, which we call, and we worked with Dave in using, is called a, a niche analysis and a species, can be called a species niche analysis. And so you can use the same framework for looking at a plant or sort of any other living organism. But when applied to people, it's this really easy way to get sort of a baseline of information to inform a design, whether that is physical or social or otherwise even. Well, this is Jessica again, Jesse. The way that I, I would think about that in a, in a few ways. In terms of my direct experience as a volunteer in relation to permaculture, I really think a lot about the first permaculture principle, um, observe and interact, because I think as a volunteer, we can be in a situation where we both are allowed by um, the structure that has us there as a volunteer, but also where we ourselves can allow ourselves to be a little bit more relaxed, to be more observational in what we're doing in a given area. We might have a, a project if we're hired to do something and a specific goal and we have clients that have a timeline in mind. And so when you're being paid, I think especially with our cultural structure in the U.S. of wanting to be very efficient, wanting to um, get things done the quickest way possible for the least amount of money. There is a desire then to just go in and do a project and get it done and get out. And the relaxation time or the time to uh, just be either doesn't happen at all or you do it at the end as a part of a, you know, a celebratory hangout time. And so I think with volunteering, um, as I mentioned in the, the opening statement about some of the realizations that came to me while in Peace Corps in Madagascar was that at least our country director for Madagascar, and this differs depending on the program that you're in, but the country director for Peace Corps in Madagascar said to us, we don't want you to come up with any ideas or projects that you think are the winning panacea answer for everything, magic bullet, what have you. We don't want to hear anything from you. We don't want you to apply for any grants for any community projects until you've been there at least six months. You need to just go in and be with your community. You need to um, absorb the language. You need to get to know people and you need to start having the people slowly start to reveal to you or through what you see, uh, what seems to be a good project that could benefit that community. And what you really need to do is listen to what the people in the community tell you. So this idea of not being prescriptive right off the bat, but observing, understanding the environment that you're in. I think that was a very strong element of volunteer versus what I've experienced as a worker, as an, as an employed person to complete a project. 
And that's, yeah, that's a little, this is Caroline again. That's sort of where I would agree with that and sort of summarize that as understanding the ecosystem of the community or the community as an ecosystem of itself and volunteer work and community engagement. Thank you both for that. It's an ongoing dialogue that I've had with some others within our community about needing to be able to approach all the people who are involved in a project, whether that's trying to develop some new you know, community gardens or whether that's working in a paid capacity with a client that we have to meet the needs of the people who we're serving. And sometimes, especially when we get out of a PDC that first two to three year period, when we're all kind of fired up and still thinking a lot about the landscape, it's about, well, what's best for the earth? What's best for this landscape when it comes to design as opposed to, well, how do we engage so that these systems can exist for the long term? And I'd like to kind of use that thought of community to begin the the more formal discussion about social system design. And I was wondering if you could both kind of give me your elevator pitch to encapsulate what that idea is and begin that conversation. I don't know that we've developed an actual elevator speech on this. So probably an important thing, but I think we're so much still in the process of understanding, you know, there's different, there's different levels of social system design. And I think we can talk about Dave's social system design, which he hasn't written formally about, but if you work with Dave Jackie um, in any capacity, I, I imagine that it comes up very quickly, that he has a way of working with people that's very intentional in looking at a few different elements within an axis. So when you're first entering um, a project, uh, he refers to um, something that people do often, which is called the hippie handshake. And the hippie handshake he refers to is a way that people essentially they're in a, a common cause project. Early on, you believe very much that your intentions are good. And that's a huge reason why we become involved in projects together. So it's not something we want to do away with that we all come to the table with the best intentions. But he posits that we actually can do ourselves a disservice by not doing a lot of planning upfront for social systems design. And what he talks about in terms of uh, what needs to be looked at are the purpose or the function of the actual mission of the work, uh, the ownership. So who has the rights to the yields, who has access to use, uh, looking at heritability, uh, what happens when certain organizations or people step down and how does the project continue on, um, looking at investment both upfront and ongoing, uh, looking at labor input upfront and ongoing, decision-making power, accountability, consequences, access to information and access to communication. And so for Dave's axes of social system design, he is asking that we as project uh, creators, permaculture project makers and implementers, that we really intentionally map out what some in permaculture call invisible structures and what Dave Jackie believes we should not call invisible structures, we should call social and economic structures, which are very real. And if, if we call them invisible structures, then they stay invisible. And so having the conversations that map out, for instance, these axes becomes incredibly important to do early on, especially when everyone's feeling really happy and excited and have, has a lot of energy for the project. In this kind of design process, where would you begin in mapping this out? Is there a starting point? This is Caroline, um, and I started to allude to this a little bit. I think what we have developed on our own and in working with Dave I would characterize a sort of a three-tiered or three-pieced approach to social system design. Uh, And one of those pieces is the axes of social system design that Jesse just described. And then a more baseline analysis, I think, is is the niche analysis. Um, And so as I was saying, this essentially is the needs, yields, and characteristics, and that is of each person involved. And I think as soon as you see that, physically or, or on paper, the connections there become start to become so obvious. And that the purpose or the function, that first axis of social system design will start to, you know, immediately become visible when you see a common need or a common characteristic. Um, that informs that sort of mission statement that is the purpose or the function of a group or, you know, any social system. And so that's what we have found as a great 
starting point. And then there's two more sort of categories of vetness analysis that we get into eventually. And, and those two are predators and allies. And am I missing any other niche? No, those are the five. I mean, and I think, I think Dave would say that that's a really great start. And so for Caroline and, and myself, that's where we begin. And it's, and one of the things that I think we want to tie in when we're looking at these these beginning questions, it's a very similar line of questions that you ask about plants when you're starting to put together mutually beneficial relationships. Mm -hmm. And so you'll often see, if you see a, a presentation by Dave Jackie on uh, creating mutually beneficial relationships and doing a niche analysis, he'll put up a picture of a European pear tree. And it's, it also looks like the, the famous permaculture picture of a chicken where you look at the needs, the yields, the, you know, what have you around that chicken. I think that many of us who have taken permaculture, if not all, have seen that image used. And so what we're looking at is the same thing. And so for the pear tree, for example, you're looking at its products, which are the yields. You're looking at its needs. You're also looking at its predators, its characteristics, and its allies. And so in the case of a European pear tree, what it has to offer are, say, fruit, white flowers, glossy green foliage, and moderately dense to dense shade. Uh, what it needs is a pH soil of 6 to 6.5. It needs moist, well-drained soils. It needs to be in a zone 4 through 8. It needs full sun. Its predators are generalist herbivores, the codling moth, characteristics. Years to bearing, four to seven. Lifespan, 50 to 75 years. Its allies are humans, bees, uh, different types of, of birds that eat harmful insects. And so we're looking at our mutually beneficial relationships, in this case, with a plant. Now, similarly, when we're looking at social systems design, and as Caroline described, we want to look at the same types of elements when thinking about people or organizations. And so when we're talking about, say, in our situation, we have, we're working with like our parks and recreations department to, we designed a, um, a public edible forest garden park, and we're working with multiple organizations, and everyone has a different role to play, and you want it to be a really natural fit and to be mutually beneficial in the same way that you arrange your plant relationships. And so we have, uh, in a presentation that we give, a uh, looking at a, a person or an entity, and that entity is our Parks and Recreations Department. And so we look at the yields that they have to offer. So say they have community influence. This is the Parks and Recreations. Community influence. They can be a website host. They can maintain uh, parks and trees. They have financial resources. They can help us with irrigation. What are their needs? They need to be recognized. They need a well-defined plan for the park to be installed and, and maintained. They need a support of a coalition. They can't do it on their own. There needs to be a public process for the final say on the design. That's a need that they have. What are predators to us, to city parks and recreation? Well, that can be liability, you know, volunteers on the site and what, it, and there's liability. There can be a lack of time pulled in many different directions. Um, the park staff, they have many different projects, not just this one. And then what are some characteristics? Well, maybe they're cautious. In Helena, Montana, we're a pretty cautious community. We wait quite a while and decide over a long period of time if something's a good idea before we jump in. And that's different from some communities. Another characteristic is that the city parks owns this land that we're developing this park on. And we know another characteristic that their current highest use of labor is spring, summer, and fall. So how can we make sure that we are uh, planning the implementation in a way that meets their characteristic of being pretty busy at certain times of years and how can we create a mutually beneficial arrangement in the development of the project that doesn't feel too hard for them because it's at the wrong period of time. And that's just one park plan, the analysis for it. Yeah, that's one entity. Yeah, one entity in the social system for the development of this forest garden park. And then you can extend that then as you work through the different elements then of that project to examine even further, like the niche of the volunteers who might be doing that work to be examining the time that 
the community would have available to work on the project, not only the seasonal, but also the hours that is devoted to the project, how that divides out between like how many hours per volunteer on average and just keep and keep extrapolating that information until you have enough of a hold on it in order to provide that large plan that the parks and rec department needs in order to be able to move forward. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly what we've recently just done with our volunteer structure for the six ward garden park. And I think you touched on an important piece of it, which is that each phase, so not only is there a niche analysis for each either entity or individual who is a stakeholder, there's a niche analysis for each stakeholder in each different phase of the project. And so we've found that the needs and the yields of one stakeholder and entity is, are much different during sort of a planning phase as opposed to an implementation phase. What's it like in putting this project together to work within a bureaucracy? I'm wondering what you've encountered as a part of working through this particular project. Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the need for an assurance of a, of a long-term management plan. And when we started talking about the social system design and planning for long-term management and maintenance, um, and also these sort of you know access to yields, access to use, from the very beginning, it gave people a lot more confidence in this project to succeed as a, a large project with many stakeholders and sort of multiple players involved. And so while it's been incredibly complex, I think it just underlined from the very beginning how important the social system design um, and, and conscious design of that was to its now implementation and, and eventual success. What are your reports looking like? Are they kind of these large documents in order to support the work that you're doing? Yes. The design and implementation plan that Caroline and I uh, worked with, first with our local community, then with a charrette workshop that we did with Dave Jackie a couple of summers ago, and then more interaction with that design with the community, and then further detail development with the community and with this advisory council that we're currently working with on the park. Our design plan at this point is 136 pages long. It maps out, first of all, the reasons why we would suggest particular uh, designs. So that's the assessment and analysis. Analysis and assessment is the proper order of saying that, where you go into a lot of detail about kind of where you are and what are certain design uh, needs that should be considered out of that. And then you go into your um, design patterns, which in our case includes a social system design pattern. And then from that, we have you know all kinds of supporting documents, uh, research, studies, what have you. And those are, that was what our city parks department director needed in hand, this final document, this kind of beautiful map and lots of details in terms of like how we got to where we were with the design and also the budget. Uh, what does a budget for a one acre park look like in all the different areas? And what does it look like over a five year period? And all of that outlined is, I would say, very important in terms of interacting within a bureaucracy. I think in our case, in particular, um, we are, Amy Teagarden, the director of Parks and Recreation, is very much a champion of this work. And so having a champion within the bureaucracy who's very good at navigating all the different channels of that is key. So for anyone undertaking a project like this, you know, you've got to have your champions who understand those systems if you're standing outside of them so that they can help tell you what needs to be in this big document. You know, I don't I don't want to say that everyone needs a really comprehensive document with CAD designs and what have you. I, you know, I would like to think that there are other ways to go about it. And I think that I think that there are. But that is what what we did. And that plan is available on our website uh, in full for people to, to view. And what is the URL for your website for anybody who wants to go find that document? It is www.insideedgedesign.com. And then Caroline, uh, what would you like to add to that? I was going to add a piece about goals articulation as the 
Park's goals, which is a very long document in itself, is a piece of the design report. And it was one of those first steps in the first documents that we created. And so we utilize a process of goals articulation that organizes ideas based on their level of specificity and their functional relationships to each other. The most general ideas represent those overarching values or desired qualities that we can often find difficult to define. And the moderately specific goals uh, define those overarching values in more detail. They serve the values, they help to create them. And then thirdly, the criteria are the um, specific measurable or observable criteria that will assist us in creating and in knowing we have created what we set out to. Uh, and so that is a definition of goals articulation from Dave Jackie. And this, I think, was important to to ground everyone, including our bureaucracy, the government, you know, governmental entities, and what exactly are we doing? <laughs> and having really sort of working that out to a, a pretty great level of detail um, for our own purposes and knowing sort of developing a plan and a design and also in communicating what exactly our, our end values, goals, criteria are. It's a really big picture in order to take in all of this information to develop this kind of a design document and to use this framework. But from what you've shared so far, it sounds like this social system design and the eight points that you arrived at from Dave's work with the axis of social system design and then followed up with the five elements of your niche analysis analysis of needs, yields, characteristics, predators, and allies kind of allows you to step through that process and ask questions at each stage and help you form strategies then to arrive at, to borrow from our permaculture lexicon, the techniques that are needed to engage the community that you're working within. Yes, this is Jessica. I would say that another way that that's very important, the goals articulation, is this idea that Caroline suggested, which is the the checking back with the initial kind of values, goals, design criteria. So think of the design criteria as the details, you know, and, and you can always say the doubles in the details or you can get lost in the details or sort of go off on tangents, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It can be very creative. However, when you set up your design using the goals articulation framework, you can check back in anytime you want to with however far you've gotten with your details. Um, and especially once the design details start translating into products that are happening, um, either in the installation or, you know, actual apples growing or what have you, you can actually go back to your goals as your middle ground statement and then your value statement and keep evaluating whether or not your um, meeting the initial values that the whole group agreed they wanted to achieve within the community. I think it becomes especially important as you engage new people in the project, new volunteers, and to have sort of as you have new ideas coming up, having a way to then vet those ideas back with those overarching values and goals, as Jesse said. And those overarching values and goals remind me of something in a conversation that I had with Dave about espoused versus governing values, needing to understand what it is that an organization says they want to do versus what their actions show they do. Very much within, you know, the governance documents of an organization, very often you'll have like a mission statement or a value statement that is very broad and beautiful. But when you actually get down to their operational documents, they can be completely counter to that mission and values and needing to correct within an organization what actions they're taking in order to better align with what it is that they're doing. And it sounds like that goals and values articulation is a large part of making sure that you stay on track and checking back in to make sure that you're aligned with both sides of that work. I think that and then another one that's really presented itself for me lately is his recognition that we need to establish valid ways of knowing ahead of time. And our group, we did not establish necessarily valid ways of knowing. I think there's a lot of assumptions, you know, related to who's considered an expert in what area and who isn't. Or basically with any of our actions, what are the valid ways that we decide we should move forward on something? And I think that's another really important one that we're still kind of wrapping our head around. But it's it's come up for us in relation to that we do live in a in a culture that really values ex 
expertise. And expertise can mean that you have a PhD or that you've done something for 30 years or, you know, there's there's different ways that we um, can identify someone as an expert. And then you can have people that are experts who are experts in a way of doing things that no longer necessarily works for especially for positive ecological design work and and ecological and positive ecological projects and so how is it that you establish valid ways of knowing within a group that allow for sometimes the expert ideas to be challenged when they need to be and for people who aren't recognized as an expert, how can they open that door and even be able to have access to these halls of power or these places where their knowledge can make a difference and be recognized as having, because of the credentialed requirements very often within our society, you know, to have a, a valid perspective or point of view to be a part of the conversation? Exactly. Or to be able to set even an agenda item for the topic to come up. Because sometimes what can happen is that if there's a particularly tricky discussion, what often I've noticed happens is that the topic just doesn't get raised. It's just avoided. Just to follow up with that, do you mean in that the person who would like to raise that point doesn't necessarily have the confidence to bring it up or that the halls of bureaucracy keep them from being able to add it as an official point on a meeting or both? So. I guess we've gotten a little bit, I'm not necessarily talking about the halls of bureaucracy anymore, although maybe maybe it is the nature of bureaucracy as well. But just in general, I would say in group structures, yes, I think that people can feel intimidated if they're not, if they don't consider themselves to be a leader in a group, um, however that's been decided. And if it hasn't been talked about, I think there's a lot more informal or like invisible structures or social and economic structures that would keep a person from bringing an, an important agenda item to the table or others. Or if they did try, some of our social systems tell us that we we shouldn't allow that person. They're not the right person to bring that to the table. And so that's an interesting it's an interesting way that we interact with each other that's worthy of being explored. And it is that kind of that inner landscape stuff. What are our expectations of valid ways of knowing um, who's allowed to bring up certain ideas, who's allowed to set the agenda items, those kinds of questions. And thank you for generalizing that. I've been working with issues of governance within a nonprofit as well as within local government. So I'm very kind of thinking about it in a formalized structure. So thank you for taking that and pulling back away from that within my question. Normally, this is where I would begin to draw an interview to a close. And I'm comfortable with the information that you provided us about, you know, the axes of social system design, as well as the niche analysis as a way to begin asking the questions that are necessary to begin exploring social system design, as well as the example that you provided of your work on the community park. But before I ask you for your final thoughts, I was wondering, where do you see social system design going from this point, as the ideas begin to develop, like, are there certain ideas and people that you're connecting with about how to apply this further in a way that we can use these ideas to take permaculture further and further away from the landscape and more deeply into our community? So one of the areas that I am starting to explore with social systems design is how is it that we can take Dave's social systems design theories and apply them to everyday contractual agreements between people. Like, do we need to redesign the wheel, as it were, or are there already existing contracts like business plans, memorandums of understandings, um, open space contracts? What is it that are applicable um, contracts that people can start to use when they want to engage uh, with each other on ecological positive projects that are also shared between a lot of different entities and people who are going after something common but have different reasons for being involved and also different yields to offer and different needs that they have for the project. And so I've been exploring that a little bit, and I also, in exploring that, have come to some research on interpersonal trust 
there's a woman named Erin O'Hara. She's a law professor at Vanderbilt University, and she's um, writing relatively extensively on interpersonal trust and how that relates to law. And when is it important to just be able to have that hippie handshake? Sometimes you need to just be able to do something in a relaxed fashion to be creative and to move something forward. And so when is it that you want to set up written contracts? And when is it that it's important to establish interpersonal trust? And how do we even look at trust when we're working with groups? And so that's an area that I'm just starting to explore. And one of the things that I'm interested in working on with Caroline and with our business is like creating some templates that are based on contracts already in place that would start to encapsulate these social systems design so that we can just actually go into our projects with people when we're asked to design, say, like a management schematic after the, the physical design of the park has been put in and help a group actually come up with some written contracts that encapsulate those elements that Dave talks about. Where it also brought me, Scott, was to... I believe it's Eleanor Ostrom. I think I'm saying her name correctly. And she recently has passed on, but she won uh, the Nobel Prize in economics a few years back. She might have been one of the first women, in fact. But she also talks about this. This is a, will be a familiar term for some people, but the idea of managing the commons. And that really connects for me with Dave's work as well. She has done extensive, did extensive, extensive research on how to govern common space, both sustainably and equitably in a community. And she has has eight principles for managing a commons. And so I'm also interested in tying that in with Dave's inner landscape stuff, because there's a huge, wide body of research. And so how is it that we can start pulling together um, information that has been extensively researched and start to put that into contractual existing um, frameworks where we can start moving really forward on these ecological projects in a way that truly is mutually beneficial between all the different people uh, working on them. And then using this information, you can leverage pre-existing systems in order to further advance your work with less input that you're not having to redesign everything from scratch? Yes. And it's also where we get a little bit into the valid ways of knowing. A lot of people want empirical research and data. And I think if we can start to align some of these newer thought patterns with historical data and, and foundations that were, were leading us in this direction and connect them, we can use the data that we already have to prove some of the newer innovations we're trying to make with how people work together. How do you see this influencing your work in the future? As a next step in my thinking with Dave's framework for social systems design, I'm really interested in tying together his system with Eleanor Ostrom's eight principles for managing commons. And so her eight principles are, number one, define clear group boundaries. Number two, match rules governing use of common goods to local needs and conditions. Number three, ensure that those affected by the rules can participate in modifying the rules. Number four, Make sure the rulemaking rights of community members are respected by outside authorities. Number five, develop a system carried out by community members for monitoring members' behavior. Number six, use graduated sanctions for rule violators. Number seven, provide accessible, low-cost means for dispute resolution. And number eight, build responsibility for governing the common resource in nested tiers from the lowest level up to the entire interconnected system. I feel really excited about merging these because I know through Eleanor Ostrom's eight principles, this was a part of my research in graduate school, she put together a lot of different kind of contractual arrangements based on what people did for hundreds and thousands of years in managing commons. And I think we can take some of that information and insert it into what Dave is talking about and actually start using these questions and using these frameworks and contracts that are already in place to bring about 
an actual design and a moving forward of the design and the implementation where people can work together in a way that's naturally how they have worked together for hundreds and thousands of years. I don't, is that making sense? It's very broad. It is very broad. And I feel that in this as an introduction, we've provided a lot of places where people can go to explore these ideas if they have interest in them. And that I can use listener feedback after this is released that we can come back and have a more specific conversation about various pieces of what we've covered today. Yeah, I think just to um, piggyback on what Jesse finished up with there was is that there is not one axis for every group. I mean, it's it varies so wide, widely, group per group or social system per social system. Like exactly what these the axes you could call them or what it is that you is important for your group to define. And so what I'm interested in is eventually having a framework for a group to, you know, to create a system specific framework or axes of social system, if that makes sense. So sort of, we have sort of a a framework that's an example that we're working with now. So how can we create a framework that allows other people to, to identify sort of what those axes or what the pieces of that are? It sounds like the two of you have a lot of work ahead of you on researching and exploring this topic. It was very broad topic in more detail and more depth as you develop it. And it's certainly something that I would like to revisit with you as time passes, because I feel that it's a very necessary part of the exploration of permaculture as we move further and further away from those landscape origins and begin to make these pieces that for so long we've referred to as invisible more tangible because of how important they are for this work to continue and to be able to pass it off to not only future generations from an educational perspective but also within our various communities as these projects develop to make them more sustainable so that we can develop that permanent culture that permaculture has moved towards as that idea of permanent agriculture becomes a smaller part of it with that and everything else we've discussed in mind, do you have any final thoughts from this first conversation on the subject of social system design to share with the listeners? So I think the way that I would wrap this up or or sort of what I'm left with at the end of our conversation is an excitement for the possibilities for social system design and expanding permaculture into other areas of work. And, And for us, for whatever reason, it's been the low-hanging fruit for interjecting permaculture frameworks of thinking into other types of projects that our firm does. And so that has been really exciting for us. And then the final thought that I would have, I guess, is to urge people to start utilizing, um, if they don't already, or if they're interested in, in a starting point, that question of what are your needs, what are your yields, and what are your characteristics for some social system or some social group that they are involved with and see where that goes. I have started using it in all in sort of many different ways, um, socially and professionally. And while pretty basic, it opens up a lot that was previously unknown to me. So that would probably be my closing. So tying this all back to Dave Jackie's social system design framework, his axes. And I think Dave, in a lot of it, well, the couple of interviews I've heard with you and also in our own conversations with Dave over the years is he challenges us to really get in touch with our inner landscape. And I think uh, maybe a core focal point of all of this is that it really begins there. Um, As Caroline was saying, with understanding what your own needs, yields, inherent characteristics, who are your predators or what are your predators, what are your allies. Understanding that about yourself is so much the core of all of this because when you understand where you're coming from and what's leading you to make the decisions that you are making and what's leading you to react to certain ways that people behave in group settings, um, your own inflows and outflows of energy, When you start to really understand that, that's when you start showing up in an incredibly authentic way that can contribute, I think, in a much more whole way where you can um, understand all the different dynamics going on as much as possible, um, have a more bird's eye view of things, a more objective view. When you are looking at things with a 
a deeper sense of self. And so I would just leave our listeners and kind of leave this conversation with that as very much the most important aspect of social systems design is, is beginning with, with yourself, your zone zero zero, as I've heard it referred to. Caroline, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today and enumerating all these points of social system design. As I've said several times during our conversation, it provides a lot of information to explore further. And I really do look forward to doing some of that personally so that I can have a better understanding of it, as well as continuing these conversations with you and others who are doing this work. Thank you again so much, both of you, for joining me. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott. That was Caroline Wallace and Jesse Peterson of Inside Edge Design, LLC. Find out more about them and their work, including their design document for the 6th Ward Garden Park, at InsideEdgeDesign.com. Stepping away from this conversation, I'm left with the feeling that their work will have a huge impact on our ability to design with the social and economic systems of our communities in mind, in a way that ensures we are able to use permaculture in the process. We could use the pre-existing principles, but... I find that coming from the PDC experience, we're trained to look to the landscape as the metaphor, and sometimes that frame of reference gets stuck. Here, with their examples of the niche analysis that includes predators and allies, the axes of social system design, and Eleanor Ostrom's Eight Principles of Managing a Commons, we can leverage other tools into our toolbox that break us out of that strictly permaculture mindset without having to start from scratch and then expand upon those ideas, based on our own interests and abilities, while keeping permaculture in mind. The road ahead for social systems is an incredibly vibrant one to be a part of, but is also a space where we're likely to face numerous challenges moving forward. I say this because of the conversations I continually encounter online, where permaculture is still viewed, largely, as a means of permanent agriculture, rather than one of attaining permanent culture. With that in mind, where do you see the current state of permaculture? Where do you see it going from here? Where are you taking permaculture that you would like to share with the world? Let me know by getting in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write me a letter and drop it in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also join in the conversation at facebook.com slash the permaculture podcast or follow me on Twitter where I am at permaculture CST. I'll do whatever I can to assist you on this path. If you can help me, I would greatly appreciate it. Share a link to your favorite episode on your blog, a forum, Facebook, or Twitter. Tell a friend or support the show with a one-time donation using the PayPal button on the main page of the website at thepermaculturepodcast.com or by becoming an ongoing monthly member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Anything you do to help keep this show on the air and growing lets us, together, reach more people and bring ecological design further and further into the mainstream consciousness. One person, one story at a time. We can make a difference. Until I join you again, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.